The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 111, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will be ever mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice, and all his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever, and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Okay, we're out of the book of Deuteronomy for five weeks. We're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. For the people that don't know this, that may be online or that uh, may watch this later, I'll explain it at the beginning of the sermon why we are doing this. So you don't need to worry about that. At the beginning of the sermon, when I present it, I will give a very short video clip for the people that are on YouTube that are watching this so that they can get an idea of what's coming. But for now, we are in 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 1, going through verse 11 today. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gat, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. We are at the Valley of Elah, where David slew Goliath. This past May, 
I was supposed to go to Israel to have another walk with Sergio and Yossi like we did last year. That didn't come about because of the politics of the coronavirus. The scheduled flight was canceled, and now, almost six months later, El Al has yet to either refund the ticket or reschedule the flight. Because of this, when Sergio and I were talking, we mutually came to the agreement that he and Rhoda would go to the Valley of Elah, which is a bit southwest of Jerusalem, and do a video presentation of the place while I would type a series of sermon on the passage which makes the Valley of Elah even knowable to the people of the world. That way we could be doing a project together, even if it is separated by about 6,000 miles. I'm not sure how much help I will be in his video, but as of this first sermon, I've already pestered Sergio several times concerning the Hebrew. By the end of the chapter, I'll probably be on his email block list. <laughs> Before we go on, I'd like to know, because we have seen the video. Did everybody here enjoy the video? Yeah. All right, so for the people that are watching this particular sermon on YouTube, it is recommended you go watch that video because you'll be able to tie the sermon in with the video presentation. Sergio and Rhoda in Israel and go to the David and Goliath video and I think you'll really enjoy it. 1 Samuel 17 is one of the greatest and most memorable passages in all of scripture. It sets the tone for the life of David who would become king in Israel and it demonstrates the concepts of faith in the Lord and trust in his guiding hand in a way that is almost unmatched in the pages of the Bible. But more, it deals with one of the most beautifully messianic or Christological passages in the Bible as well. Great themes of the redemptive narrative are contained within it, and it reveals what God would do based on what he promised to do in a unique and beautiful way. The context of the passage is necessary to understand what occurs here. In chapter 15, King Saul had disobeyed the Lord and failed to follow through with his command to utterly destroy the Amalekites, devoting them and all their possessions to God through destruction. Instead, it says, but Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Because of this, Samuel the prophet came to Saul and said, you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Following this in chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel did so, and David, the son of Jesse, was selected and anointed. After that, it notes that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. In order to calm the distressing spirit, David was selected to be brought before Saul to play the harp before him. That is where the chapter ends. From there, we enter into chapter 17. Our text verse comes from Ruth 4. It is verse 17. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. David is noted more than 930 times in scripture between Ruth 4.17, his first time mentioned in the Bible, and Revelation 22.16, the last time he is mentioned in the Bible. He won't be mentioned in the verses today, but they are necessary to set up the scenario for us to see 
and to understand why he was considered so great throughout the rest of the Bible. The scene is the Valley of Elah, a beautiful valley that is lined with low mountains, in the middle of which is a ravine. On my trip to Israel with my mom in 2003, it was one of my most cherished stops. While there, I took out the Bible, and I read the passage we will be looking at for the next few weeks. Everyone gathered around and listened, almost the whole tour group. Afterwards, many of them came up and thanked me. What astonished me is that nobody else had brought a Bible, including the tour guides who had conducted almost 70 tours by that time. To me, it seemed like a no-brainer. Go to Israel, take your Bible. (laughs) Apparently, I am in the minority, but I cannot even fathom why that would be so. The central point of faith for every true Christian on this planet is Jesus Christ, and the only way to know him is to know your Bible. None of Scripture makes sense without him, and all of it makes complete sense when viewed from his life. If you don't believe this, just look at Israel. They have absolutely no idea what their own scriptures tell them because they don't know who Jesus is in relation to what those scriptures are saying. And the truth is that if anyone picked up the Bible without having the New Testament, it really wouldn't make all that much sense. But in knowing Jesus, every single story comes into clear focus. This is a certain truth which is discovered when you pick up and read his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a few thoughts for you today. The first is, in the valley of Elah. It's verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. The name Philistine comes from the verb palash, which signifies to roll as in an act of mourning. In this state, a person will roll in the dust or ashes because of their intense grief. Thus, the name signifies griever or burrower or something akin to that. They are first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 in the Table of Nations, and they are noted in the area of Canaan as early as Genesis chapter 21 at the time of Abraham. They are believed to be displaced descendants of the Minoans who entered the land of Canaan and gained a foothold there. They lived along the coastal areas, but here they are gathering their armies together for battle against Israel. As it next says, verse 1 continues, and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. The name Soko comes from the verb suk, meaning to hedge or fence up. Thus it means hedge or fence. One commentary says it comes from the noun sek. If so, it would mean thorn. That is less likely. This area is specifically said to belong to Judah, which means praise. Thus, the Philistines are seeking to expand into Israelite territory. From there, the account becomes more specific. Verse 1 going on. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Azekah comes from the verb azak, a word used only once in Isaiah 5, verse 2. It signifies to dig about or tilled. Here's what it says in Isaiah 5:2. Now, let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Here's that word. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Ephes damim comes from two words signifying to cease or come to an end, and the plural of the word blood. Thus, it means something like the boundary of blood drops. James Strong also defines it as two extremities, meaning the soles of the feet or ankles 
I don't know why he did that. The name Boundary of Blood Drops probably refers to the fact that this is the boundary where there was constant warfare between Israel and her brutal neighbors. This is the only time the name Ephestun meme is seen in scripture. Elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 11.13, it is known as Pasdamim. This area is about 16 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It also is 13 miles west of Bethlehem, the place from where David comes. Verse 2, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together. Saul is the king of Israel at the time. Though he has already been disobedient to the word of the Lord and has been told that his time of rule will end and the kingdom will be granted to another. Saul or Shaul comes from the verb Sha'al, meaning to inquire or ask for. Thus it means asked for. However, it is identical in spelling to the word Sheol or the place of the dead. In this, one can imagine the grave calling out for the souls of humanity, asking for them to come and join it. The army of Israel came together at the threat of the arrival of the Philistines. After that, verse 2 continues, and they encamped in the valley of Elah. In order to face the Philistines, Saul and his army come to and encamp at Emek Ha'elah, or Valley the Terebinth. There are several words translated as valley in scripture. This one, Emek, comes from Amok, signifying deep. Thus, it is a broad depression. Elah comes from Ayil, or a ram. Thus, it denotes strength. It signifies an oak, or a terebinth, trees known for their strength. Here, there is an article before the word Elah. Thus, it is rightly translated as Valley the Terebinth. With both camps now properly settled into their respective locations, it next says, verse 2 continues, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. And drew up in array battle to meet Philistines. One can feel the tension when such words are presented. There are two camps, obviously confident in their abilities. The Philistines are the aggressors, and the Israelites would have sued for peace if they thought that they could not match the forces that had come against them. Therefore, either the Philistines will realize their mistake and back out of the encounter, or there is only left the anticipation of a battle which is sure to come. Here they come again. The Philistines are looking for war. They have camped between Soko and Azekah and Ephes Damim. They have it out for us. They are pretty sore. They are like buzzing wasps, or so it would seem. But with Saul leading us, the many ranks of Israel, surely this will be a quick route and we will be home soon. We'll all sit around the table, our stories we will tell, and maybe write a war song with a catchy tune. Here we are camped on one side of the ravine, and the ranks of the Philistines are on the other side. But now, there is someone standing in between. By the look of him, our quick victory may be denied. Our second thought today is the middleman. It's verses 3 through 11. Verse 3, the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side. Upelishtim omedim elhahar mizeh. And Philistines stood upon the mountain from this. It is telling us that the valley is sided with mountains. On one side, the Philistines are standing on the mountainside facing Israel. Further, verse 3 continues, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. Ve'Yisrael omadim el-Hahar mizeh. And Israel stood upon mountain from this. On the opposite side of the valley is another mountain with Israel standing on its slope facing the Philistines. But between them, there is a natural border. 
Verse 3 continues, with a valley between them, Vehagai Benehem, and a ravine between them. Here the word, which is also unfortunately translated as valley, is completely different than that of verse 2. The Emek, or valley, is a broad and deep valley between the mountains. Here the Gai, or ravine, is narrow and it's precipitous. Thus we have a natural border between the two forces, which is, at times, running with water. It is a ravine within a valley, and it explains how these two armies could stand against one another for an extended period of time without actually engaging in battle. First, crossing any distance to the ravine would leave them open and exposed to archers. Once at the ravine, those crossing under normal circumstances would be at a continued disadvantage. While they crossed through it, the opposing forces would station themselves on the other side and easily destroy them as they struggled down one side and up the other. The word for valley here is gai. It comes from geva, meaning exaltation. Figuratively, at times it speaks of arrogance or pride. That comes from ga'a, meaning exaltation or triumph. It is with this ravine between the two that the Philistines begin to make the first move in the battle. Verse 4, and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines. And went out man, the middleman, from camps, it is plural, Philistines. The use of the plural camps signifies various divisions of camps which form the entire camped army. From these camps, one comes forward. To describe him, the word benaim, or champion, is introduced into the Bible. It will only be seen here and in verse 23. The word is the plural of bayin, or a space or interval, which was just used in verse 1 and translated as between. This word then signifies a double space or double interval. What is being conveyed here is that he is the one to step forward, thus leaving a space between himself and his own army and between himself and the opposing army. Therefore, he is the middleman and thus the champion of the armies allied against Israel. In this capacity, he is the one to challenge the opposing army to a single combat to decide the entire battle. He is, verse 4 continues, named Goliath. Geliat Shemo, Goliath named. His name comes from Gala, meaning to uncover or remove, but it also means to lead away into exile. The word was first used in Genesis 9, verse 6, where it says of Noah, Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. It is used often in Leviticus and Deuteronomy when speaking of uncovering the nakedness of another. At times, it speaks of the Lord revealing himself. Thus, in the case of Goliath, his name means the uncoverer and thus exposer. But the secondary meaning of exile is tied in with this because when one is exiled, He is left open and exposed in that state. To call him exiler, then, is not inappropriate. But the primary meaning of exposer carries the weight and the meaning of his name. He is the one who intends to expose the weakness of Israel. He is, verse 4 continues, from Gat. Gat comes from the noun Gat, meaning winepress. Verse 4 continues, whose height was six cubits and a span. Here is a new word in scripture, gova, or height, The word signifies excellency, elation, grandeur, and so on. It can also be figuratively used to signify haughty. In this case, it speaks of his literal height, six cubits, and a span. 
A.W. Bollinger defines the meaning of the number six. Six is either four plus two, for example, man's world four with man's enmity to God, the number two brought in, or it is five plus one, the grace of God made of none effect by man's addition to it, or perversion or corruption of it, or it is seven minus one, meaning man's coming short of spiritual perfection. In any case, therefore, it has to do with man. It is the number of imperfection, the human number, the number of man as destitute of God, without God, without Christ. A cubit, or a ma, is a unit of measurement which is the length of the forearm below the elbow. It comes from the word m, which means mother and thus it is the mother measurement. It is debated what the exact length of a cubit is, but it is about 16 to 18 inches. The zaret, or span, is a rare word, seen just seven times in the Bible. It comes from zara, which means to scatter or winnow. Thus it is the distance between the tip of the little finger to the end of the outstretched thumb, as if the fingers are scattered. If you take your hand in that fashion and place it on your arm at the tip of your middle finger and then do the same where your hand ended, you will see that it will end at your elbow. In other words, a span is one half of a cubit. Assuming the cubit is 16 inches multiplied times six plus eight inches, one would come to 104 inches. Divide that by 12 and this guy is almost eight feet, seven inches tall. He would be a descendant of Anak, very few of them remained, but this is stated in Joshua chapter 11. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from the Beer, from Anav, from all of the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gat, and in Ashdod. These Anakim lived among the Philistines and are thus regarded as Philistines. The account now continues to describe this champion. Verse 5, he had a bronze helmet on his head. Vekova nechoshet al rosho, and helmet bronze upon his head. Here the kova, or helmet, is introduced into the Bible. It comes from an unused root, meaning to be high or rounded, as in arched. It is a variant of kova, spelled with a Q instead of a K, a helmet which is used in verse 38 of this same chapter. Bronze in the Bible mainly symbolizes judgment, but also endurance. This judgment can be positive or negative. If positive, it results in purification and justification. If negative, it results in punishment or even death. However, there is the truth that in order for there to be positive judgment for a sinful person, then there must be the death of an innocent in his place. Therefore, the positive judgment still carries with it a negative aspect. Think of Christ. You've got the brazen altar at the temple. We went through that back in Exodus. It's made out of bronze, right? That's where the judgment is. It was picturing Christ's cross, the crucifixion. Well, it's good that I'm having my sins expiated, but it's not good that the animal is having its neck cut to replace me in the sin forgiveness process and how much more when Christ died on the cross of Calvary. Verse 5 continues, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Veshirion kaskasim hu lavus, and breastplate scales he clothed. The word kaskaset means scales. It is only seen elsewhere in the dietary laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Ezekiel 29, verse 4, all referring to scales. Thus, some translations rightly call it scale armor. 
Of this, Charles Ellicott says, this armor has been sometimes understood as chain armor. But it is more probable that the Philistine armor was made of metal scales, like those of a fish, whose defensive coat was, no doubt, imitated at a very early date by this warlike race, who dwelt on the seashore, and whose life and worship were so closely connected with the great sea. This coat of mail, or corselet, was flexible and covered the back and the sides of the wearer. Next we read, verse 5 continues, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. 1,000 shekels would weigh a bit more than 25 pounds. Therefore, 5,000 shekels would be a bit more than 125 pounds. Verse 6, and he had bronze armor on his legs. Umishat nechoshet al raglav, and frontlets brass upon feet. This is a word used only here in the Bible, mitzcha. It comes from an unused root meaning to be conspicuous. Thus, it is bronze armor which covered the feet, but probably extended over his shins as the greaves of a knight would. Further, verse 6 continues, and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Vekidon nechoshet ben ketefav, and bronze javelin between shoulders. The word translated as javelin is kidon. It comes from the word kid, meaning calamity or misfortune. It is used elsewhere and translated as a spear or a javelin, such as in Joshua 8. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. As it is kept between his shoulders, as a quiver would be, it is a smaller weapon than the sword he also carried, which will be noted in verse 45. But it could have been either on his back or the front. If it was long enough, it would be kept on his back. He'd keep it back here and he'd pull it forward and he'd hack people up with it. If it was shorter for really in close fighting, it might be kept on the front. He'd pull it out and start stabbing the people that are too close to him. Verse 7, now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And arrow his spear like beam weavers. There is a variation between the written and the spoken text here concerning the word staff. The spoken uses the word chetz, signifying an arrow. The written uses the word etz, or wood. This shaft is described as kimnor orgim, or beam weavers. The size of a weaver's beam, both in thickness and in length, is completely unknown as they vary greatly. However, the fact that it is described as such tells us that it was certainly very thick, or there would have been no point in conveying this. Further, it would have been rather long. One commentator notes that it is conjectured that in proportion to the stature of Goliath, his spear must be 26 feet long. You remember now, these guys are in battle and they have their spears, which are long spears for thrusting at people. He, in proportion, would have one 26 feet long. You couldn't get very close to this guy. If this is so, it would have to be thick enough to stay straight, even with a great weight at the end of it, as is next noted. Verse 7 continues, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. And the flame, his spear, 600 shekels iron. The word flame signifies the part of the spear that flashes like a flame, thus its head. In this, it is made of barzel or iron, which in the Bible represents strength, be it in binding together, in government, in hard service, in bondage, or so on. 600 shekels would be about 15 pounds, 
With the added weight of the wood, the spear would be extremely heavy to carry, along with the sword, javelin, and all of the body armor, and yet this is how he was arrayed. The point of all of this detail is to show that Goliath was not only a huge man, but that he was extremely strong, being able to wear an immense amount of weight in armor and weapons, and more. He was not only strong, but the armor and weapons mean that he was both heavily defended and exceptionally well armed. This has all been given to make a complete contrast to the one he will eventually have to face in battle. In addition to all of his own armament, we also read of one more item that accompanied him. Verse 7 continues, and a shield bearer went before him. Venose hatsina holek lefana, and lifter the shield went before him. Here that sina or shield is introduced into the Bible. It comes from the word sen, meaning a thorn or a barb. It is a guard against that which pierces. Cambridge, citing the scholar Layard, says, The archers, whether on foot or in chariots, were accompanied by shield-bearers, whose office it was to protect them from the shafts of the enemy. The king was already attended in his wars by this officer, and even in peace, one of his eunuchs usually carried a circular shield for his use. This shield-bearer was probably a person of high rank, as in Egypt. With all of his strength protection, offensive weapons, and secondary assistance, Goliath, the exposer, is ready to challenge the enemy to battle. What will he uncover concerning the state of Israel? Verse 8, then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel, and he stood, and he cried out unto the ranks of Israel. The word signifies an arrangement, thus its plural used here signifies ranks or battle lines. This one man has stepped forward and is called out to the entire army of Israel who are formed on the other side of the ravine, readied for battle. Verse 8 continues and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? The translation is spot on. His words are a taunt. I have stepped forward and you all are arranged for battle. But why do you enter into battle against us? I am one man who represents all of the people behind me. One of you come out and fight me. So far, none of you has stepped out of your ranks. The very fact that he had to call out shows that nobody was yet willing to come forward. And so he taunts a little bit more. Verse 8 continues, Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? The words are much more expressive. Halo, anochi ha pelishti veatem abadim le not I, the Philistine, and you, plural, he's speaking to all of them, and you, servants of Saul. The idea here is that of both national pride and of faith in a leader. He has declared himself the Philistine, while they are Israel. Further, he is not a king, but Saul who leads them is. If Saul hasn't stepped forward, then who else is likely to? His words are chosen to dishonor the nation, the king, and also each individual who fails to step forward and meet his challenge. But what is more important, and which has as yet been left unstated, is that it is an attack against the God of Israel. The very name Israel means he strives with God. Who will strive with his God to defend the name that he bears? Is there even one who will come forward to meet the champion of the Philistines? Verse 8 continues, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Beru lachem ish veyered alei. Eat you all for yourselves man and come down to me. The word bara, 
choose or select is most perplexing. It means to eat, and it is always translated that way except here. The context is obvious, even if the word's meaning isn't. Choose. It comes from a word barar, to purify, polish, choose, and so on. The connection between the two is found in Ecclesiastes 3.18, where this root is used. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of man, God tests them, that root word, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. In this, man discerns something. Goliath is asking them, using a word in a very odd way, to discern who is capable of coming against him. But in the use of this word, he could be making a pun. If so, it would be, do you all have confidence to eat one of yours for strength? If so, let him come down to me. In essence, if whoever is sent is enough to feed all of you as an army, fine. But I assure you, it is he who will be my meal. Again, it is an attack against Saul. If the king won't come out to battle, then they should choose someone more fit than he is and come out to fight, making the decision for him. Saul has fought against and driven back the Philistines in the recent past, and yet now he must be tiring. Surely someone competent could come and take his place. And so Goliath petitions for someone capable to come down and face him. Verse 9, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. The words of Goliath are obviously taunts intended to embarrass Israel. If either side felt they could win the battle, they would have engaged in battle. But the layout of the land made it impossible to say who would win or how many dead there would be in the process. And whichever side went first, they would be the ones at a disadvantage. Therefore, it was Goliath's day to shine. Nobody was moving forward and no opposing individual would come forward. He knew this. And so to first embarrass them by showing that none could kill him, he begins with these words. I'm just one man. If one of you kills me, we will be your servants. The temptation is given first, knowing that it would not be met with a response. After the temptation, then comes the warning. Verse 9 continues, but if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. In what would be a certain defeat in the clash between the two, the army of Israel would thus be defeated. The only option left to either side is to wait it out while Israel endured the tauntings of Goliath. If they picked up and left, the Philistines would move forward and gain ground. And so the stalemate would, for now, remain, but not without continued tauntings. Verse 10, then the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. I strip bare the ranks of Israel, the day, the this. The verb haraf means to taunt, to reproach, defy, and so on. However, it comes from the noun choref. That means harvest time or autumn. Thus, his words are as, as if he has stripped the ranks of Israel as a plowman would strip the fields at harvest, laying them bare. Such a taunt as this is intended to show that he knows nobody will come forward. They are as the sheaves in the field that are easily cut down. Verse 10 continues, Give me a man that we may fight together. Tenuli ish ve yachad. Give you all me man and we may fight together. Ignoring Saul, who will certainly refuse to come or even choose a person, he is asking all of you, it is plural, to give him a man. In essence, he is taunting everyone, he is taunting all together, and he is pitting them one against another. 
nobody will even be willing to say, hey, I might not be able to beat you, but this guy over here can. Nobody is confident enough in himself or in anyone else. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, and heard Saul and all Israel the words the Philistine. The battle was obviously unwinnable by either side when pitting army against army and because of the ravine which ran between them. Therefore, the only option to see an end to it would be a solitary battle between the two forces best. The champion of the Philistines had come forward and he had defied the king of Israel. Every soldier of Israel, and indeed he had also implicitly defied the God of Israel because his name is upon them. However, instead of trusting in the Lord, we see a sad conclusion to our verses for today. Verse 11 finishes with, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And they were discouraged and afraid greatly. The word chatat or discourage was introduced into the Bible in Deuteronomy 1 verse 21. It signifies to be shattered, dismayed, beaten down, affrighted, and so on. It has been used five times since it was introduced. One, look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. As the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you, do not fear or be discouraged. Deuteronomy 1.21. Moses speaking to the people when they originally stood at the door to Canaan. Two, and the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Deuteronomy 31 verse 8. Moses speaking to Joshua just prior to him taking over the leadership of Israel. Three, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's Joshua 1 verse 9. The Lord speaking to Joshua after the death of Moses. Four, now the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Joshua 8 verse 1, the Lord speaking to Joshua after Israel resolved the matter of Achan. 5, then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Joshua 10 verse 25, Joshua encouraging Israel after the defeat of the five kings. In all five examples, the Lord is the one who is shown to provide the victory if the people will simply trust him and follow his lead. All five instances were recorded in Israel's history. They would have known it. And all five times that word was used, it was joined to the thought of being fearful. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Here, exactly the opposite is seen. The people are not only discouraged, they are said to be greatly afraid. The key point that we are to see as we close out today is that all of Israel failed. They failed to remember the scriptures which were given for their admonishment, and thus they failed to trust the Lord who gave them that word and who assured them that they would prevail if they trusted him. It is a somewhat sad note to end on, but it is only the beginning of the story that we will see as the two armies sit across from one another in the valley of Elah. For today, 
we have gotten some background information into the story. We've learned some of the mechanical information needed to determine what is going on, and we have been set up for the introduction of a very special figure into the narrative as soon as we begin our journey through the chapter next week. For now, the main lesson that I can impart to you from today's verses is that God wants us to trust Him. He is there with us even if the enemy we face is well-defended, large, and well-armed. In comparison to the Lord, He is a bug. He is nothing. But in order for us to trust Him as we should, we have to know Him as He is. Muslims certainly trust their false god, Allah. Anyone willing to blow himself and a bunch of other people up in order to supposedly be granted entrance into paradise has trust in what he thinks is true. The Japanese were told the same thing in World War II as they flew airplanes into the side of warships. People all over the world trust in one god or another. The problem is not trust. Rather, it is properly directed trust. The God of the Bible, the one true God, isn't like those other false gods. Instead of asking us to do something for him, he promises to accomplish the work for us instead. All he asks us is to know him, to know who he is, and in knowing him, to then trust him. The problem is sin, and sin came through the lies of the devil. In order to correct that, God promised to destroy the works of the devil, and indeed to destroy the power of the devil. Eventually, the devil will be cast out of our presence forever. An eternal swim in the lake of fire is to be his final state. The way that God has accomplished this and continues to accomplish all of this is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. As we continue through this chapter, keep remembering this. Keep asking, how does this point to Jesus? In the end, the story of David is a part of the story of the coming Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who will indeed get us to those fair shores of the better land which God has prepared for us. Let us trust him to do so. In this, God will be pleased to call us his children. This is the story of the Bible. God takes all of these obscure stories that don't make any sense. Why would God include a story about this? Or why would he include a story about that? And yet when you look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ, it all comes into clear focus again and again and again. If you have not watched the Genesis sermons, you've missed every picture that is shown there. Why did God put a story into his word about a man named Judah having sons that were disobedient, didn't have children through a daughter-in-law of his, and he goes, God kills off those children, right? And then he's promised another child, but he doesn't give it to her, give that child to the woman. And then he goes down into where she's living at the time as a widow, right? And she puts on a veil pretending to be a prostitute and ends up having a child with him. Now, why did God put that story in there? Because it's all about Jesus Christ, every word of it. When you get to the book of Numbers, you're going to see all kinds of stories, people failing to go into the land of Canaan. You wonder, what's that about? Well, I'll tell you, it's about Jesus taking a serpent and putting it on a pole and raising it up so that people that get bit by snakes will live. That is about Jesus. Jesus even said so in, what is it, John chapter 1, just as, maybe it's John chapter 3, excuse me, when the just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who looks at him can have eternal life. Every story that is in here is about him. So as we're going through this, think on it. But more importantly than that, don't just 
think on it. Think on your status before the Lord God because you are going to die someday. Guess what? You're not getting out of here alive. Nobody has yet. You might as well face that. Unless the Lord comes at the rapture first, you need to be right with this God. And there's only one way to do it, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel, in a nutshell, is that Christ died for your sins. You're a sinner, and you need a Savior. Christ went into the grave. He was buried, proving that it was not fake. It was a real death. And Christ rose again because he had no sins of his own. So the only thing left in that pit, folks, is your sin. He came out without your sin, and he had to come out because the wages of sin is death and he had none of his own. He had to come out of the grave. That is the gospel and I would ask you today that if you have never called on Jesus Christ to simply admit that you're a sinner and to receive what Christ has done for you. Call on Jesus as Lord and you will be saved. That's the message of the Bible. I've got a closing verse for you here. Remember at the beginning we started with Ruth 4.17. The first time David was mentioned in scripture. Here's the last. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Revelation 22:16. What a great God. And he's using a fallible guy to picture him. A guy that went and had a, somebody else murdered, committed adultery. Yes. You know, he just, he was able to use him in that capacity though. What a great God we serve. I will tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and he has a good purpose for you. And he has promised to fight the battles for you that you face. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? This is a promise from the word of God. Now, before we get into our poem and then take communion, I would like to ask you a question. If you can answer it, I have something for you. I have a shirt that says, Eternal Life Matters. Okay, there you go, Eternal Life Matters. This is from Charlie Missy, and I will hand it out to somebody that can answer this question. All right, and guess what I also have? I got this just for the sermons. I got it, slingshot. I got a, I got a nice stone, a nice round stone, and I got a slingshot, and let me tell you what, this baby can really do some damage. Uh, Sergio and I were talking about it, and while we were talking, he was making that slingshot. He did it out of um, uh, duct tape. And I said, now you need to put a little, you know, a little indentation in there because he made it flat. And he, he did it. Man, that thing worked first time for him. I mean, it's just wonderful. They're very easy to l learn to use. When we were young, we used to use these things for fun. And uh, I completely forgot about slingshots in my life. So now I have one again. This is great. So I'll be out there destroying people's uh, uh, foreheads with that pretty soon. Okay, here's my question for this beautiful shirt. Um, what chapter of what book of the Bible, what chapter of what book does Paul speak of the weapons of armor and spiritual warfare? Ephesians Who said what? I heard Ephesians and 6. Did somebody say Ephesians five. 6? It's Ephesians 6. six Did anybody get that? You are just spot on. That, oops, I didn't get it all the way. Here, let me put it in the slingshot and try it again. It'll get back to you. <laughs> Very good. All right. You've got an Eternal Life Matters shirt. Good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Everybody, I heard all kinds of, and everybody was, so I'm glad nobody got angry at anybody else because I couldn't focus on any one person. All right. Here we go. We're going to read a poem and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper and then we'll go to our respective places. 
Oh, wait a minute. I got to tell you next week's sermon before I do that. Next week is 1 Samuel 17, 12 through 27. They will shout out Aru and Ara. That is what they will do. It is entitled David and Goliath, the Valley of Elah. Part two. Thank you, Jay. Okay, here we go. Here's our poem. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which to Judah it belongs. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephestamim, a place now famous in songs. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, all of the Israelite genes, and they encamped in the Valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, ready for the battle's mayhem, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, one solitary man named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, cooler than the fawns. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Try to think of something that rhymes, folks. And he had bronze armor on his legs to protect bone and skin, and between his shoulders, a bronze javelin. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. And a shield bearer went before him. From the other side, there were certainly no heckles. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Why? Tell me plainly. Am I not a Philistine and you, the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. We will make no fuss. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Listen to what I say. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid because that giant guy was pretty mean. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this marvelous story right out of the pages of scripture, which show us so many pictures of redemptive history coming to its fulfillment, things that will be fulfilled thousands of years later. And yet you use these true stories of real human beings for that purpose so that we could see you to understand you and what you are doing for the people of the world. Thank you for that wonderful, wonderful thing that you do for us through your beautiful word. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we exalt you, we pray for a good week ahead for the people that are in attendance, for those that listen later, or for anybody that just needs to know Jesus Christ, that they will do that and they will certainly have a good week ahead, even if they die five minutes later of cancer. The best thing in the world is to be saved by the blood of Christ because life eternal awaits them when they do. We pray this, that you will be glorified, that they will be blessed in you, and we pray it in his name. Amen.